Good morning, world changers. Good morning, good morning. We're in the book of Acts. We're kind of journeying through this, thinking about the word fortitude, F-O-U-R, fortitude, four things. Love God, love yourself, love others, and love creation. In the book of Acts, we find people doing that, and so that's why we're looking in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 6. Last week, we talked about how uh, the disciples had set up a way to uh, feed the widows who were standing in the soup line, and we made the comment last week that that's probably not what Jesus had in mind. What Jesus had in mind was to, to take your mom in, and uh, he would have divided the, the widows up and said, this is your mother, this is your mother, this is your mother, treat her like your mother, instead of making them stand in the soup line, and that way they would have been better cared for. And so we go from chapter 6 with that topic, and we get down to the story of Stephen. Now, Stephen is one of the, one of the seven that was appointed to take care of the ladies in the, in the soup line, if you will. He was one of the seven. He was, he was not a Jewish person. This is important. He was not a Jewish person. He was a Gentile. There were two groups of people. There were the Jews, and there were the Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. So everybody else in the world was a Gentile. And uh, pretty much would be considered a heathen from a Jewish standpoint because you didn't trust in God. However, there were Gentiles who did trust in God. They were called God-fearers. They, they feared God. They worshiped God. They sought after God. And Stephen was one of those who had sought after God. And apparently, since he was a, a Gentile, he didn't have the scrolls to read. But somehow, he knew the story of Israel uh, just as good as maybe some of the Jewish people did. And we're going to see him in just a moment telling the story of, of how the nation of Israel came to be as he's making a case before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were kind of like the, uh, <clears throat> they were kind of like the police in the Jewish society. They weren't really police. They didn't run around with spears and batons, but they were the, they were the religious police. And if you did something irreligious, if you did something against their, their religious code, they would come find you. And if they didn't like what you did, they would, they would stone you. They would kill you. And so, they were always looking for somebody that, was, that claimed to be a Jewish person, but who was a heretic. In other words, they went against something in the Old Testament. And so we're going to run against that today. We're going to run against this opposition, this, uh, <clears throat> this group of people who didn't want to hear the truth. And so chapter 6, verse 8 says, And now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Stephen is one of the few disciples that's, that's listed, that's named out other than Peter, James, and John that actually did miraculous signs or wonders. And so this is interesting. It's important that we understand he was full of grace. He was full of power. He went and healed people. Perhaps he raised people from the dead. Perhaps he cast out demons. We don't have his list like we have the list of Jesus and some others. But the Bible says he did great <coughs> wonders, not little wonders, but great wonders, and miraculous signs among the people. So he would be a pretty good guy, right? If, if you were sick and, and you know, you had, you had something wrong with your knee and Stephen showed up at your house and, you know, slapped your knee and it got healed, you would like Stephen, right? Yeah. Right. So Jesus went around doing good. He did the same thing. Jesus would walk up down the street and, you know, you, you got something going on, your elbow's messed up, and Jesus said, be healed, and your elbow's fine, right? He was good. So Stephen was doing the same things that Jesus did. Wherever he went, he was healing people. So he was a good guy. Now, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen 
as it is called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. Now, in Roman, the, the Romans, Roman Empire went everywhere back in the day, back in, in this time, and, and they owned everything. They, they owned everything, and they owned all the countries, they owned all the people, all the politicians that were in place were in place because that particular politician gave the Roman emperor enough money, and so he could buy a position. And if you wanted to be the governor, you just go to the Roman emperor and say, look, I'll give you some money. He says, sure, that's yours. You take it. And as long as you continued to give him money, it was your job. So what was his job? His job was to get money from you, right, the average citizen, so that he could give to the emperor so he could keep his job as governor. And then he would take a cut off of that for himself. And so does that sound like stuff that goes on today, right? Nothing's changed, right? Nothing's changed at all. Now, the Romans believed in two things. They believed in taking people as slaves, but they also believed in freeing slaves. And so when, a, when the Roman government would take over a country, they would pick out the, the educated people, so they would pick out the doctors, the lawyers, so forth and so on, and they would enslave them, but they would give them to their friends who voted for them to say, okay, I've got a teacher here. He's, a, he's really smart. He knows his stuff. And so you get to, this is your teacher. You get to keep him. And the person would keep him and learn everything they could from him. Perhaps it was a doctor. Well, you get to keep a doctor. And so they would enslave them, and they would have to serve this family that they were given to. But the Romans also believed in freeing slaves. So at some point, they would be freed from that task and freed from that responsibility. And that's the topic it's talking about, the freed men, the free people who had been slaves at one point because of some governor or somebody that, that enslaved them. They had been freed. Okay, so that's the group it's talking about, the freed men. They were freed from Roman uh, enslavement. Now, apparently, they were somewhat religious because they had been freed but you would think because they had been free from slavery, they would have some mercy and grace toward others. But apparently they wanted to exact some revenge against some people. So this opposition arose from these people who had been set free. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Now, this is important for us. We ought to be able to speak with wisdom to people who don't know Jesus. We ought to be able to speak with wisdom to those who ask questions. We ought to do it with grace. The Bible says, let your speech be as it were. As grace is seasoned like it was with salt. In other words, it's, it's salty, it's flavorful. We ought to do that. But Stephen apparently had wisdom attached with the, the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, that is the kind of the religious police. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Can you think of somebody else that they had false witnesses come against? Anybody in the Bible? Right. Okay. So we see we see a parallel between Stephen's life and the life of Jesus, right? Jesus went around doing good. Stephen went around doing good. Jesus spoke with power through the Holy Spirit. Stephen spoke with power through the Holy Spirit, right? And, and then we find these false witnesses 
uh, come against him. So we can see in the life of Stephen a pattern for us, right? We need to, because he patterned his life after Christ. They brought these false witnesses. And they said, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, that is the temple, the synagogue, the sanctuary, the place where they met, and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Did Jesus ever say that? That he would destroy this place and rebuild it? Do what? He did, Millie, you're right. He said it in John chapter 2, verse 19. But he was referring to himself. He said, you tear this down, you tear, you tear me down, right? And I'll be rebuilt in three days, right? So there was a misinterpretation of what he was saying. He also prophesied that, that there would not be a stone unturned on the temple, that it would be destroyed. And when was it destroyed? You get an A-plus if you know the year the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. You go, girl. You get an A-plus-plus-plus on that. 70 A.D., that's the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So what Jesus prophesied would happen about himself came true. He died. He rose again three days later, right? And he prophesied that there would be no stone unturned on the temple when it was destroyed. And that happened 70 years after he prophesied it in the year 70 A.D. Excuse me, 40 years after he prophesied it in 70 A.D. And so Jesus did say that. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Wow. So, here's, here's the message I want to get to. I, I, five or six points we're going to get through in chapter 7 here. And, and these are random points that I, I find in the Scripture. <clears throat> the first one I find is that people can tell when you've been with Jesus. People can tell when you've been with Jesus because it's his presence within you. Because you host his presence. You know, if you drink a cup of coffee this morning, which some of you are, you're hosting the presence of that coffee, right? You're hosting the presence of caffeine or sugar or cream if you put some in there. You're hosting, right? If you eat some banana pudding, right? You're hosting some bananas, right? And some pudding. And you're feeling really good about yourself, right? right? If you drink from the living streams of water, you're hosting the living streams of water within you that continually refresh you over and over and over again. We know that Jesus is the living springs of water, right? If you eat the bread, symbolic up here in the tray, if you eat the bread, you're hosting his presence, the bread of life. Apparently, Stephen had walked so closely with Jesus that people could see that he had been with Jesus. Now, it says his face looked like an angel, that it was glowing. There are three people in the Bible whose face glowed, who lit up, that, that's recorded. Who knows the three? You've already got one, Stephen. <clears throat> who knows the first guy? Moses, right? Matter of fact, he glowed so brightly after he came down from the mountain and being in the presence of God, he had to put a veil over his face because people couldn't look at him. It was just so bright. Who is the second person? It would be in the New Testament. Starts with a J. Jesus. Jesus. Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says that Jesus became white. His raiment became white. He glowed, right? right? So we see a parallel from Moses to Jesus. 
There's always some great parallels in the Bible. Moses led people out of bondage. Jesus led people out of bondage, right? Moses had 70 men that he appointed to help him. You know, Jethro came in to him and said, I need you to, he appointed 70 and so forth. And he had 70 prophets. Jesus had, Jesus sent out 70, right? Moses went up on the mountain. He came back glowing. Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, was glowing. Some great parallels between Moses and Jesus and Stephen. Do you see how the Bible's connected? From way back when to today, it's a beautiful connection. People can see if you've been with Jesus because they see his presence in your life. Let's continue reading. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, Stephen replied, he's making his defense now. Brothers and fathers, very respectful. Brothers and fathers, spiritual fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. He said, leave your country and your people. <clears throat> God said, go to the land that I will show you. Now, remember, this is a Gentile that had taken the time to learn the history of Israel and is about to tell them the whole story without notes and without a Bible in front of him, the whole history, and bring them up to speed on who they really are. So he left the land of the Chaldeans, and he settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. Now, many scholars believe that the land of the Chaldeans was, was near Babylon, okay, Iraq, right, uh, in that area. And he came north and headed toward what we now know as Jerusalem. He didn't make it all the way, but that's the direction he was going in. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. Now God says, look, I'm going to make you a great kingdom, but you, you're not even going to see the land I'm going to take you to. You're not even going to make it there. So Abraham had a, an 80 or 100-year promise that he was given that something was going to happen, but it never happened. And sometimes God gives us those kind of promises that won't come true until we're in heaven. Sometime, listen, sometimes the promise that we get is for our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren, as it was with Abraham. The promise that he received was, and so it's important that we realize as parents and grandparents and great-grandparents that we may be here for that promise for them more than we're here for the promise for us. It's important to know that God has a promise for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. What are you doing to nurture that promise and to foster that promise and to help them discover that promise? Sometimes the main reason for our existence is for a grandchild or a great-grandchild, not so much for us. So if you're given a promise, just know that maybe, like Abraham, it's not for you. You're just starting the promise. The promise won't be fulfilled until out there. God spoke to him this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. It's a 400-year-old promise. Prophecy. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac. Circumcised him eight days later after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain a foothold to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him the ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. 
<clears throat> then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers to, uh, for the visit. And on the second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And after this, Joseph sent his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from his sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler in Egypt. Some people think that's Ramses II. Perhaps you've heard of that one. They're not sure, though. He dealt treacherously with all of our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was, carried for, he was care, cared for in his father's house. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and actions. Would you give up your three-month-old, put him in a little boat, send him down the river, and hope that something good would happen? And it just so happened that the Pharaoh's daughter saw him and liked him, right? This particular Pharaoh's daughter, they think, was uh, very headstrong. The word we all like to use around our house is focused. <laughs> focused. Very focused. And she just told her daddy, I want that baby. I want to take it. And he said, okay. She apparently had that kind of sway over the, over the king, her father. Now, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by, by an Egyptian. So he went into his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. So Moses was a murderer. What does the law say about a murderer? What does the law of God say uh, in Leviticus, so forth, where the law is written? What does it say a murderer is supposed to happen to <laughs> They're supposed to be stoned to death. Moses should have been stoned to death. By the law, he should have been stoned to death. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you're brothers. Why are you, why are you fighting like this? Why are you hurting each other? But the man who was being mistreated by the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he was scared. He fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After another 40 years had passed, he was 80. An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert at Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went out to look closely, he heard the Lord's voice say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look at him. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groanings and have come down and set them free. Now come and I will send you back to Egypt. And this is the same Moses who they had rejected with the words, who made you our ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. Do you know anybody else in the New Testament that spent time in the desert? Jesus. And who else? Paul. Saul, who became Paul. 
This is the Moses who told you, the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me for your own people. He was in the assembly of the desert with the angel who spoke to him out of Mount Sinai with our fathers, and he received living words to pass to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. If you want to, if you want to know what the whole Old Testament's about, chapter 7 is the condensed version. All the Old Testament is condensed down, really, basically, into one chapter, chapter 7 here. And so we get to verse 39, a point I want to make here. I think our Heavenly Father's greatest heartbreak is being rejected by His children. <coughs> our Heavenly Father's greatest heartbreak is being rejected by His children. I was praying this week as I was meditating on the Scripture, to what to say this morning, and I kept asking God, God, what is your heart? What is your heart in this passage? What is your heart in this passage? And that's what the Lord told me, is that the greatest heartbreak that He has is being rejected by His children. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, And Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become sons and daughters of the Most High God. You know, there's 7 billion people on the planet right now, many of whom have rejected God. And I think his heart is broken over that. Many of them have rejected him because they don't really know who he is. They've never really met him and got to know him. They've made judgments about God. They went to a church somewhere, and there was a lot of religion going on, and not a lot of spirit going on, and they made a judgment. This is God. I, why do I want to be a part of this? I was eating with a pastor friend of mine. This was a couple of years ago, and... Uh, we walked in, we sat down at the little table and waited for the server to come over. And <clears throat> as, as I'm apt to do when I'm out to eat, I'll ask somebody, is there anything I can pray for you about after they place the order, to take the order. And so we sat down at this table, and this lady, young lady, probably 22, 23, came over, and, and she sat down, which is unusual for a server to do, to sit down <coughs> at the table with you. They'd stand up. She sat down and said, what would you guys like? And so we gave her our order. And I said, now, I called her by her name. Her name's on her tag. I called her, called her by name. And I said, uh, Sarah, I said, in just a minute, my friend and I are going to pray for our food and give thanks. Is there anything we can pray for you about? She slapped her hand on the table, not in a mad fashion, but just in a startled fashion. She said, what is it about this table? She said, every time I sit at this table, somebody wants to tell me about Jesus. And I thought, okay. So I asked her, I said, well, what do you know about Jesus? She said, well, Here's what I know. She said he had, he had long, pretty hair. He was real nice to people. Some people got together and beat the, and she used the S word out of him. And I don't know why. That's what she told me. I said, would you like me to tell you why they beat that out of him? She said, I wish somebody would. She said, I went to a church one time with a friend who said, it's the best church she's ever been to. She said, all we did was kneel down, stand up, kneel down, stand up, kneel down, stand up. And they were speaking words. I didn't know what they were saying. It was a different language. It was a Catholic church. She said, I, I didn't know what they were saying. She said, I wanted to find out about Jesus. And I didn't, they didn't tell me anything about Jesus. So I decided I'd never go back to church. She made a judgment based on what church. So I began at the beginning and told her about Jesus and why they crucified him and how he rose again and how he could live in her life. Right there at the table. 
She said, well, I'm glad you told me. Nobody's ever told me that. She's 23 years old, living in America, in the Bible Belt, in the buckle of the Bible Belt here in Tennessee, right? And didn't know who Jesus was. A father's greatest heartbreak is his children who reject him. Let's continue on. And they told Aaron, make us gods before us. We'll bow down. And, and for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what uh, has happened to him. You know, he's up on the mountain. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought a sacrifice to it, held a celebration in honor of the cow, what they had made with their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. So not only did Stephen know the Old Testament history, he knew the prophets as well. Look, he quotes. He's quoting. This is all. He didn't read. This is not sermon notes. He's quoting. Did you bring me sacrifices and offering 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have filled up the shrine of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Molech was one of the worst gods with a little G that was out there. This is where they sacrificed children to. Vile, vile worship. They sacrificed their children to the god Molech. God had led them out of Egypt. It led them away from all that. And they got back in the desert. Couldn't find Moses for 40 days because he's up there talking to God. And they decided, let's make a calf. You know the story, right? They got all their jewelry together, all the gold together. They threw it in there. And they said, we just threw the gold in the thing and it popped out a calf. Look what happened. That's what they said. It just, it just poof. And so we worshiped it. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he'd seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the, <clears throat> the nation before God and drove them out. It's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. Heaven is my throne, the scripture says, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build for me, says the Lord? Or where would my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Here's my second or third point, I guess it is. God does not live in a building. God does not live in the four walls of this building that we're in. Real important here. Catch this. We, when we come together right now, human beings who've come together, flesh and blood who've come together, not brick and mortar who've come together, we are the building right now. In this very moment, we are the building. First Peter tells us that you are the building and God dwells within us. We are the building. First Corinthians 3.16, we are the building. So when we gather, God is present with us. If there's two of us that gather, right? If, if Caleb and I are the only two sitting here, then God's present. It's, we become the building. If there's 20 of us, we're the building. If there's 200 of us, we're the building. Don't miss that. It's so important for us to gather together because when we do, God is in the midst of us. God is going around right now, moving among us right now. He's already in us, but he's also moving among us. It's one of those mysteries. And he's talking to every one of you. And no matter what I'm talking about here, he may be telling you something else entirely different. I've known people to walk out, and I didn't say a thing about tithing. I said, that's a great message on tithing. I'm like, I didn't say the word tithe the whole time. But God is doing that. 
because we are the building. He's moving around in us. Secondly, don't miss this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are the building. Gary, you are the building. You are, Gail, you are the building. Each one of us individually is the building that God lives where he lives inside of us. Don't miss that. You host his presence, like I said in the beginning. Wherever you go, you're carrying him with you. And when you meet somebody that's a believer, you're a building. And God is moving between the two of you, in around you, all around you, trying to minister his grace to us. God does not live in a building made by man's hands. He lives in the man that God made with his own hands. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, you need to go to a chiropractor. He can help you. Isn't that what your version says? I love going to my chiropractor. Wow, it just feels so good. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stiff-necked means obstinate, right? <coughs> obstinate and disobedient. Now, here Stephen decides just to say it like it is. You guys, for centuries, for 2,000 years, have been obstinate and disobedient. That's the history of Israel. For the first 2,000 years, from Adam to Moses, about 2,000 years approximately. They lived under mercy. From Moses to Jesus, 2,000 years, they lived under grace. By the law. They lived, excuse me, lived under the law. From Jesus to where we are today, we live under grace another 2,000 years. 2,000, 2,000, 2,000. They lived under the law, completely disobedient to it. And Stephen called them out. You stiff-necked people. Why do you always resist God's revelation in your life? Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute or kill? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Isaiah was cut in two with a saw. That's how he died. Jeremiah was stoned to death. That's how he died, according to Jewish tradition. And only known down the list goes of the prophets who spoke the word and were killed, which we're going to see Stephen in just a moment is going to be killed as well. It says you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, there's six things you can do with the Spirit. Five of them not good, one of them good. You can grieve the Spirit. Have you ever grieved something that you lost? Someone that you lost? You ever experienced grief? The Holy Spirit's a person. He experienced grief. You can quench the spirit. God's working in someone's life, and you come up and say, quit being so holy, you know, or quit being so whatever. You can quench the spirit in someone's life, in your own life. You can insult the spirit. Hebrews 10, 29, don't insult the spirit. You can resist the spirit, the scripture we just read, and you can blaspheme the spirit, that is, reject God altogether completely. But the sixth thing on my list is you can be filled with the spirit. Ephesians 5, 18, you can be filled with the spirit. Continue reading. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. He told the truth and they got mad at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
He was full of the Spirit and saw an open heaven. Was there anybody else in the Bible that saw an open heaven? Well, there was Jacob, right? He saw a ladder that came down, right? And saw angels ascending and descending on the ladder, you know, and he, he wrestled there with God. There was Ezekiel and Elisha who were in the field one day. And it was time to, for Elijah to pass the baton to Elisha, the prophetic baton. And this chariot came out, and the heavens opened up, and a chariot came down, all right? Like a flying saucer, right? With the lights all around it. It said, and a wheel within a wheel. And the wheels all had eyeballs and lights and everything. You read that sometime. And, and he took them up. They saw heavens open. Jesus saw heaven open. Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. There he was talking with Moses and Elijah. And the heavens opened up. And, the, and Peter, James, and John standing with their mouth open. The only thing they could come up with was, let's start a building program. You know, let's, let's build a tent over here. Let's build a building. This is a great place. Let's don't ever leave this place, right? Paul saw an open heavens. He said, I, I went up into the third heaven. I saw things I can't even talk about. John saw an open heaven. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and the heavens opened in front of me. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12. Other people have seen open heavens. Now, I want you to know, this is what, you ready for this? <clears throat> this is what spiritual graduation looks like. This is what graduation will look like for you if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The heavens will open before you pass away. Uh, you know, I know it, we don't like to talk about death and dying, and most churches never do. But I'm going to tell you, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, what you're seeing right here is what happens when a person in Jesus dies. The heavens open up in front of them. And Jesus or his representatives come and meet you. I've seen it time and time and time again in my ministry as a pastor. Somebody's getting near death. They get close to death. And all of a sudden, they start calling people's names that have already died. Have you seen that? Have you seen that, Millie? Have you seen that? They'll start calling people. And you'll say, that person's been dead 30 years. That's because Jesus has lined up his ambassadors, your loved ones, and friends who've gone before you. He's lined them up so that you meet them first so that you're not afraid to pass over. One of the things that keeps people lingering here longer is they're afraid to pass over because they don't know what's next. And God says, I've got that. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to where you are and I will receive you unto myself. That where I am, you may be also, John chapter 14. Stephen has given us an image. He's given you an image. When you get ready to meet Jesus, he's going to be there waiting on you. He's going to say, well done. A good and faithful child, come on in. I, I got some great things I want to show you up here. Come on in. Let's have a talk. Come on in. Let's go. Uh, let's go out to eat and get some pancakes, right? Whatever it is, God's got planned for you. That's, he's going to be there. And so we find Stephen seeing a glimpse of it and giving us a glimpse of what spiritual graduation looks like. Now, physical graduation looks different. Your body, it graduates from this earth suit to no earth suit at all. It goes back to the dust from which it was made. But the spirit moves on for all eternity. Amen? That's the hope that we have, right? Thank you, Jesus. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of the voices, they rushed in and he dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. That was, they took the jackets off and so they could throw the rocks better to kill him. Saul later became Paul, which meant that Saul was leading 
the charge to have them killed. And we know later on in the story that he was leading the charge to have Christians killed. And so he was, he was in charge of this stoning. And uh, in chapter 9, you're going to see where he gets born again. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Did anybody else in the Bible pray that prayer? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who did? Who? Who? Jesus. Jesus prayed that, right? It's a prayer you can pray at the end of your life. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's a beautiful prayer. We oftentimes get to the point of life, we just, you know, and we just want to hang on, hang on, hang on. And it's real simple to say, Jesus, receive my spirit. That helps us cross over. He received my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Against him. Anybody else you know pray that prayer? Jesus, Jesus right? It's a great prayer to pray every day. Lord, people treat me like a dog, but they don't know what they're doing. Some of them do. But they really don't, in essence, in the big picture, know what they're doing. That's what Stephen was saying. So even when somebody treats you like, you know what? We need to be in a place where we can say, Father, forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. In the big picture, they don't know what they're doing. And after he said this, he fell asleep. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> the most beautiful thing about death is we just fall asleep here and we wake up with Jesus. We fall asleep here. And, and who doesn't want more sleep, right? Anybody in here just, just dying to not sleep for like 10 days? Anybody? Anybody here want a nap right now? Anybody here been sleeping through my sermon? Three hands. Great. God bless you. If you can sleep through my sermon, that's awesome. That's amazing. You need the rest, right? He fell asleep. Death is falling asleep here. We get rid of this earth suit, right, that's been holding us back for years. And we get a brand new suit, all right, space suit, if you will, right? Wherever space is, wherever heaven is, we get a heaven suit. And we wake up with Jesus for all eternity, all eternity. So you are, you are an eternal being. You will never die. You get to choose where you live eternity. You choose Jesus, you live with him. Just say, yes, Jesus. You reject Jesus, I don't believe in Jesus. Then he says, fine, you don't have to live here. I'm a gentleman. If you don't want to live with me, you don't have to live with me. But you got to go live across the street. Right? And I won't be there. Worst part about death without Jesus is being separated from him. Not the fire, not all that stuff you read about of hell. <clears throat> it's bad enough. It's being separated from the person who created you. That's the worst hell there is. So it's your choice this morning. I hope you've chosen Jesus. If you haven't, I'd like to talk to you about it after the service. Just come see me and say, I want to trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I'll talk to you about that. I'll pray with you about that. Father, <clears throat> thank you for this day. Thank you for the man, Stephen. Wow. Wow. What a life he lived, a short life he lived for you. And Father, just thank you for his example. Father, thank you for Jesus. 
who died on the cross for us and rose again, who lives in our hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our God, our teacher. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, right now, that you would come as you're so good at doing and guide us into truth. Holy Spirit, there's someone here that is not trusting in you and you alone for their salvation. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd put that on them right now, that they could not leave this building. They would not leave this building without trusting in you first, completely, fully, whatever that looks like for them and you. Holy Spirit, have your way in their life. Move them to follow you this morning, to trust in you today. Father, for those who are in Christ, Holy Spirit, I just pray you'd come and encourage us, strengthen us, Help us to be a witness. Help us to be just like Stephen, bold, telling people the truth about Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray.